dacht ik dat alle twee je dat er tegelijk eruit knoden. Of van je lieve vrouwtje maar te zwijgen over reclame gesproken. Oh, u, uh, u bedoelt de zeelucht, ja? Ja, heb jij de zeelucht wel eens voor een fluitenpol? Nee, maar daar is Tine allergisch voor, chef, voor ja. de zeelucht. Ja, ja, kans doet vijven, Johanna. Ja, dat, dat, dat slaat op de luchtwegen, chef, en dan wordt ze wat benauwd, chef, Tine. Ja, Tine, ja hoor, Paul, het is goeie. En dat is dan nog om voor die mensen het wonen aan de gezonde Noordzeekust nog wat aantrekkelijker te maken. Mijn uithangbord, een krijzende kleuter... Met een vrolijk, fluitend, blauw aangelopen moederkemijn. Nou, u, u zag er zelf ook niet zo florisant uit, met permissie, chef. Ik was niet florisant, Paul. Ik had mijn dag onder de bergen gelegen. Ik had een nacht rechtop op mijn duidel gezeten. En als jij dan morgens nog eens, hè, nog eens die, in die stervenshitte een 10 kilometer strandloop organiseert... en smiddags touw trekken en s'avonds duimpje verdedigen... nou, dan heb ik s'avonds drie eerste prijzen... En Pols 180 op Pol, waarvoor mijn dank. Nou, het werd anders wel gewaardeerd door de luisje, hè, die sport. Ja, dat zijn de intellectuelen, hè. die voelen geen vermoeidheid, hè. Die hebben ieder contact met het lichaam allang verloren, hè. Die leven alleen nog maar hier. Voel je? Ja. Waar ze luid op zitten te eilen over het pokkenprincipe. Ja. En dat het een zonnesteek is, dat weten ze niet, hè? Nee, weet, ben je met me eens? Eh, ja, met de vrouw, hè, dat mag wel eens zeggen. Ja, zeg, ja, ja, zeg. Daar begon het me helemaal van te schemeren, zeg. Die met Miep. Als je die Siamese tweeling dan ook nog eens de hele zondag tussen de teers ziet dobberen. Ja, nee, toen speelden we dolfijn, omen. Dan was ik de dol en zij was de fijn, weet je. Ja, ja. Nou, dan was het voor mij wel bekeken hoor. Ik zeg tegen Doem, Doem, eerlijk, ik laat vannacht mijn tuitel, mijn tuitel. En ik heb zo'n luchtbed geklauwd, zachtjes de achterdeur uit, duintje over, strandje op en heerlijk getukt. Ja, maar uh, vanmorgen, chef, waar was u? We hebben u overal gezocht. Het tuig. Het tuig, chef. Iedereen was op het laatst doodongerust toen u maar niet kwam opdagen. En ja, toen mevrouw Biel zei dat u, en toen wij u op het strand nergens... Ja, toen hebben wij de politie gewaarschuwd, chef. Pol, beste goedgelovige Pol. Ken je dat soort nou nog niet, man? De intellectuelen, met hun intellectuele grappen... die mijn soort mensen zo verschrikkelijk boven de pet moeten gaan. Hoe bedoelt u, chef? Hij snapt het nog niet. Pol, als ik nou vanmorgen wakker word, hè... Heerlijk op mijn luchtbedje, dat frisse ochtendzonnetje, hè. En ik beklim de duimpjespol. En ik heb dan een prachtig uitzicht op bakkenpol. Wat denk jij dan? Allemachtig, heb. Was u? Dan denk jij, Pol, dat dat intellectuele schuim hun zoveelste onbegrijpelijke intellectuele practical joke hebben uitgehaald met de dikke biels. En dat ze hem s'nachts slapen en wel naar bakken hebben gereden, Pols. Ha, 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 ha. Wat hebben we ons... Een pokkenprincipe gelachen. Daar, nog zo'n piekerho, Vrinderman. Vrinderman, dat bedrijven we zo gewoon horen morgen. Ja, Pietje, precies. Dag, George. Ja, die is er, hoor. Ja. Wat? Ja. ja, die is er echt, hoor. Oh. Wil je hem even? Ja, hier komt-ie. Twijfel dan maar bestaan zeker. Nou, vergeefs, dank je. Beels hier. Ja, meneer Vrinderman. Ha? Leuk dat u nog even bij... Wie heeft u gebeld, meneer Vrinderman? De politie, bakken zegt u, mijn luchtbed is er aangespoeld zegt u, en mijn vrees, wat, groot, groot aangespoeld zegt u, en, en nou, en, en, ja nou u zegt, ik heb vannacht inderdaad een keer wakker gelegen, hè? Ik, ik was even wakker, wakker geschrokken meneer Rimmen, en toen meende ik inderdaad water te zien, maar dat droom ik vaker, ik weet vaker in En dit was Biels Co, een hoorspelserie van Jan Moraal, rolverdeling, Biels Co van Dijk, Eline Tahelle, Fiet Koster, Koen Polleman, Frans Koster en neef Eef, Mathé Verdaastonk. Regie, Jo Fischer Junior.
Atomic Flash du Luxe Atomic Flash du Atomic Flash du Atomic Flash du Luxe Les assassins Les mannequins Les diabolos Le gigant
Chapter 7 While he was lost in the delightful contemplation of Aglaya chatting gaily to Prince N. and Radomsky, all of a sudden the middle-aged Anglophile nobleman, who had been entertaining the dignitary in another corner of the room and relating something to him in a very lively manner, let fall the name of Nikolai Andreevich Pavlishev. The prince swiftly turned in their direction and began to listen. The conversation concerned present-day management regulations and the muddles there were on the landed estates in a certain province. The Anglophile stories must have contained something amusing because the old chap eventually began to laugh at the peppery vehemence of the speaker. He was speaking suavely, with a kind of peevish drawl, tenderly stressing his vowels about why he had been forced by these new regulations to sell his splendid property in that province for half its value, despite not being pressed for money, while at the same time having to keep another estate that was ruined, a drain on resources and the subject of a lawsuit, and even have to spend money on it. To avoid another lawsuit over the Pavlishev property, I got out of it. One or two more inheritances like that and I'll be ruined, won't I? I should have got 8,000 acres of first-class land, incidentally. This Ivan Petrovich fellow is a relation of the late Nikolai Andreevich Pavlishev, said General Yapanchin to the prince in an undertone. You were looking for his relatives, weren't you? He had suddenly materialized by the prince's side, noticing his intense interest in the conversation. Up till now he had been entertaining the general, who was his service superior, but having been aware of the prince's conspicuous isolation for some time now, he had grown uneasy. He wanted to get him to take some part in the conversation and thus show him off a second time to the superior persons. Lev Nikolaevich was Pavlishev's ward after the death of his parents, he put in, catching Ivan Petrovich's eye. How do you do? drawled the latter. I remember you very well, actually. When General Yapanchin introduced us earlier on, I recognized you at once. It was the face. You've hardly changed at all to look at. Though I only saw you as a child, you'd be about ten or eleven. There's something about the features. You saw me as a child? asked the prince with marked surprise. Oh, a very long time ago now, Ivan Petrovich went on. In Zlotoverkhova, where you were living at the time with my cousins. I used to drop by Zlotoverkhova quite often. You don't remember me? Quite possibly you don't. At the time you were... you had some illness at the time. I remember being quite taken aback once. I don't remember anything at all, the prince reiterated with some emotion. A few more words of explanation, supremely unruffled on the part of Ivan Petrovich, strangely agitated on the part of the prince and it transpired that the two ladies, old maids both, relatives of the late Pavlishev, who were living on his Zlataverkhova estate, having charge of the prince's upbringing, were also Ivan Petrovich's cousins. Like everyone else, Ivan Petrovich was at a loss to explain the reasons which had prompted Pavlishev to take so much trouble over the little prince, his adopted child. Well, I didn't take much interest in it at the time. All the same, he turned out to have an excellent memory since he even recalled how strict his elder cousin, Marta Nikitishina, had been with the little boy, so that I had words with her once over you and her way of bringing you up, because birching and birching a sick child, it's, you have to admit, and how affectionate, on the other hand, the younger cousin, Natalia Nikitishina, had been. Now both of them, he went on, are living in some province, where Pavlishev left them a very nice little property indeed, I don't know if they are still alive, though. Marta Nikitishina wanted to enter a convent, I believe. I wouldn't swear to it, though. Perhaps it was somebody else I heard about. Oh, yes, it was a doctor's wife the other day. The prince drank this in, eyes glistening with rapturous emotion. He declared with unwonted feeling that he would never forgive himself for not having taken the opportunity, during his six months of traveling round the central provinces, of seeking out and visiting his old guardians. He had intended going every day, but something had always cropped up. But now he pledged his word, most certainly, even if it was in some province. So you know Natalia Nikitishina, 
such a beautiful, such a saintly woman. But Marta Nikitishina, too. I'm sorry, but I think you're wrong about her. She was strict, but she was bound to lose patience with an idiot such as I was. <laughs> After all, I was a real idiot. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> still, still, you saw me at the time, and how comes it that I don't remember you? Can you please tell me that? So you... Ah, oh, good heavens, can you really be a relation of Pavlishev's? I assure you I am, smiled Ivan Petrovitch, gazing at the prince. Oh, I didn't mean to say that I doubted your word, of course. How could one doubt it in any case? <laughs> Even a tiny bit. <laughs> I just said it because Nikolai Andreevich Pavlishev was such a splendid man, the noblest of men, really, I assure you. The prince was not so much breathless as choked with goodness, as Adelaida expressed it next morning when talking to her fiancé, Prince S. Why, good heavens, laughed Ivan Petrovitch. Now, why shouldn't I be related to the noblest of men? Oh, goodness, cried the prince, embarrassed, hurrying on in mounting animation. I, I've said something stupid again, but that's to be expected, because I, I, I still, that's not the point either. And what is there in me, pray, compared with such interests, such vast interests, and compared with the supreme nobility of the man? Because that's what he was, really and truly, the noblest of men, wasn't he? Wasn't he? The prince fairly shook. It would have been hard to say why he had suddenly become so wrought up and gone into such rapturous emotion for no apparent reason, and, as it would seem, out of all proportion to the topic under discussion. He was simply in that sort of mood. It was almost as if, for some reason, he felt the warmest and most heartfelt gratitude to someone, perhaps to Ivan Petrovitch, but practically to all the guests present. His cup of happiness was truly running over. At length, Ivan Petrovitch began to regard him a good deal more closely. The dignitary, too, was staring at him most intently. Bielokonskaya directed an irate look at him and pursed her lips. Prince N., Radomsky, Prince S., the girls, everyone broke off their conversations to listen. Aglaya seemed alarmed, while Lizaveta Prokofievna simply quailed. The girls and their mamma were being rather perverse, in fact. They were the ones who had proposed and resolved that the prince would do better to sit through the evening in silence, but no sooner had they espied him in a corner in perfect isolation and perfectly happy with his lot, than they were at once filled with disquiet. Alexandra had been about to go over to him and fetch him discreetly across the room and attach him to their own group, that is, Prince N's group, around Bielokonskaya. But now that the prince had started talking of his own accord, they were even more alarmed. "'You're right when you say he was a most excellent man,' declared Ivan Petrovitch weightily, by now no longer smiling. "'Yes, yes, a splendid man, splendid and worthy,' he added after a slight pause. "'Worthy, one might say, of every regard,' he added, even more impressively, after a third pause, and... It's certainly nice to see that you... Wasn't it the same Pavlishev involved in that odd business with the Abbe? The Abbe... I've forgotten which one. Everybody was talking about it at the time, said the dignitary, as if striving to recall. The Abbe Gouraud, the Jesuit, Ivan Petrovitch reminded him. Yes, indeed, there are our most excellent and worthy people for you. After all, he was a man of birth and fortune a court chamberlain, and if he'd gone on being a public servant, but there he goes and throws it all up to join the Catholics and become a Jesuit, and made very little secret of it either, practically gloried in it. Of course, he died just in time. Yes, everybody said so at the time. The prince was beside himself. Pavlishev? Pavlishev converted to Catholicism? That can't be possible, he exclaimed in horror. Well, now, impossible is going a bit far, don't you think, my dear prince? Ivan Petrovitch mumbled gravely. Still, you think so highly of the deceased. Certainly he was a most kindly-natured man, to which I mainly ascribe the success of that old fox Gouraud. But just ask me how much trouble and fuss I had to contend with over this business, with this self-same Gouraud. Imagine. 
he addressed the old man suddenly. They even wanted to make a claim under the provisions of the will, and I had to resort to the most energetic measures to get them to see sense, because they're past masters at this sort of thing. They're amazing. Still, thank the Lord it happened in Moscow. I went straight to the Count, and we made them see sense. You have no idea how much you have shocked and distressed me, the prince cried again. I'm sorry about that. But when all's said and done, really, it's all a lot of nonsense. And that's what it would have come to in the end, as usual. I'm sure of that. Last summer, here he addressed the old man again, Countess K went into a Catholic convent as well, somewhere abroad. Our people seem not to hold out once they give an inch to those sly rogues, abroad especially. I think it all stems from our weariness, mumbled the old fellow with an air of authority. The way they preach as well. It's elegant, all their own. And they know how to put the fear of God into people. They tried to scare me too, in Vienna, back in 32, believe you me. Only I didn't succumb. I ran away from them. Ha <laughs> ha! I heard tell, my dear sir, that you gave up your post that time and ran away from Vienna to Paris with the beautiful Countess Levitskaya, not to escape the Jesuits, put in Bielokonskia suddenly. Well, yes, but it was from the Jesuit, wasn't it? It means I was escaping from the Jesuit, the little old man responded, laughing heartily at the fond memory. You seem to be very religious, which is so rare in a young man nowadays, he said gently to the prince who was listening open-mouthed, still in a state of shock. The old man was evidently eager to know more of the prince, who had begun to interest him greatly for some reason. Pavlishev was a man of unclouded intellect and a Christian, a true Christian, the prince brought out abruptly. How on earth could he have submitted to a faith that is unchristian? Catholicism is the same as an unchristian religion— he added suddenly, eyes flashing as he stared straight ahead, seeming to include them all in his gaze. Well, that is going too far, muttered the old man, glancing at General Yepanchin in surprise. How can Catholicism be an unchristian religion? inquired Ivan Petrovich, swiveling on his chair. What sort is it, then? First of all, it is an unchristian religion, the prince began again, very much agitated and speaking with undue harshness. That's the first thing, and the second thing is that Roman Catholicism is even worse than out-and-out -out atheism. That's how I see it. Yes, that's how I see it. Atheism just preaches a negation, but Catholicism goes further than that. It preaches a distorted Christ, traduced and abused by itself, the opposite of Christ. It preaches the Antichrist, I swear it, I can assure you of that. It is my own long-held conviction, and it has indeed tormented me. Roman Catholicism believes that without universal temporal dominion, the Church cannot survive on earth. Non possumus, they cry. In my opinion, Roman Catholicism is not even a faith. It's a continuation of the Western Roman Empire, and everything in it is subordinate to that idea, beginning with their faith. The Pope seized the earth, the earthly throne, and took up the sword. Since that time, everything has gone the same way, except that to the sword they've added lies, intrigue, deceit, fanaticism, superstition, and evil-doing. They have trifled with the most sacred, truthful, innocent, and ardent emotions of the people, and bartered them all, all of them, for money and paltry temporal power. Is not this the teaching of Antichrist? Atheism was bound to come from them. Atheism did come from them, from Roman Catholicism itself. Atheism first came into being through them. Could they believe in themselves? It gained strength from the abhorrence in which they were held. It is the spawn of their lies and spiritual impotence. Atheism. In our country, it is only the social elite who do not believe, as Mr. Rodomsky put it so splendidly the other day. They have lost their roots. Meanwhile, in Europe, great masses of the common people are themselves losing their faith— at first from ignorance and falsehood, but now through hatred of the Church and Christianity. The prince stopped to catch his breath. He had been speaking terribly quickly. He was pale and panting. Everyone exchanged glances, but at length the little old man openly burst out laughing. 
Prince N took out his lorgnette and regarded the prince fixedly. The little German poet crept out of his corner and edged closer to the table, smiling ominously. You do exaggerate a lot, drawled Ivan Petrovich, a touch bored, almost as if he were ashamed of something. Their church also has representatives who are worthy of high regard and are most virtuous. I never mentioned individual members of the church. I was speaking of Roman Catholicism as such, the essence of it. I'm talking about Rome. Can a church disappear entirely? I never said that. Agreed, but all that is well known and beside the point and belongs to the realm of theology. Oh, no. Oh, no, not just theology. I do assure you it isn't. It concerns us much more closely than you think. That's where we make our mistake, not seeing that this is not just something that has to do with theology. After all, socialism, too, is the spawn of Catholicism and its essence. Like its brother, atheism, it, too, was born out of despair, in moral opposition to Catholicism, to try to replace the lost moral power of religion, to assuage the spiritual thirst of parched humanity and save it, not through Christ, but again through violence. This, too, is freedom through violence, unification through sword and bloodshed. Don't you dare believe in God. Don't dare to possess property. Don't dare to have individuality. Fraternité ou la mort. Two million heads. By their works ye shall know them, it is written. And don't go thinking that all this is innocent and poses no danger for us. Oh no, we must repel it, and quickly, quickly. Our Christ must shine out in opposition to the West, the Christ we have preserved and whom they have not known. Not slavishly taking the Jesuit hook, but carrying our Russian civilization to them. We must stand before them now, and let it not be said among us that their preaching is elegant, as someone said just now. No, I'm sorry, I really am sorry. Ivan Petrovich was beginning to get dreadfully nervous, even fearful, as his eyes roved the room. All your ideas are laudable, of course, and highly patriotic, but it's all greatly exaggerated, and perhaps we'd better leave it there. No, it's not exaggerated. It's an understatement, if anything. Yes, an understatement, because I can't express myself properly, but... No, really. The prince stopped short. He was sitting bolt upright and motionless, staring at Ivan Petrovich, eyes blazing. I think this business about your benefactor has been too much of a shock, suggested the old man gently, retaining his composure. You're overexcited, perhaps because of your solitary way of life. If you had more to do with other people, society, I hope, would welcome you as a splendid young man, and, of course, you would calm your excitement and come to see that all these things are much simpler. And, as I see it, such rare cases occur partly because of our surfeit and partly from boredom. That's it. That's it exactly, cried the prince. A magnificent idea. It is from boredom, our boredom, not from surfeit. On the contrary, from our thirst. Not surfeit, you're mistaken there. Not only thirst, but fever, burning thirst. And don't think this is so trifling a matter we can afford just to laugh at it. I'm sorry, but one must be able to see ahead. As soon as our people get to the shore, as soon as they're sure it is the shore, they're so overjoyed they lose all sense of proportion. Why is that? You're surprised at Pavlishev now. You put everything down to his madness or goodness of heart, but you're wrong. And this passionate Russian intensity astonishes all Europe, not us alone. If a Russian goes over to Catholicism, he's sure to become a Jesuit, and a most assiduous one at that. If he becomes an atheist, he's bound to start demanding the violent extirpation of religious belief, meaning, of course, by the sword. Why is this? Why such fury? all of a sudden. Don't you know? It's because he has found the motherland he missed here, and he is overjoyed. He has found the shore, dry land, and flings himself down to kiss it. It is not just out of exhibitionism. Russian atheists and Jesuits are not merely born out of sordid feelings of vanity. They spring from spiritual anguish, spiritual thirst, a yearning for higher things, a firm shore underfoot, a homeland they had ceased to believe in because they had never known it. It's so easy for a Russian to become an atheist, easier than for anyone else in the world. 
And Russians don't just become atheists, they positively believe in it, as if it were some new faith, oblivious of the fact that they are believing in a negation. Such is the thirst we have. He who has not firm ground beneath his feet has no God either. Those aren't my words. They are the words of a merchant, an old believer whom I encountered on my travels. True, he didn't put it that way. What he said was, he who has renounced his native land has renounced his God also. And just to think that some of our most cultivated people have even turned flagellant. But still, in this sense, are flagellants worse than nihilists, Jesuits, or atheists? They may be more profound than any of them. But that's what their yearning has brought them to. Show the shores of the new world to the thirsting and parched crewmen of Columbus. Show the Russian world to a Russian. Let him seek out the gold, the treasure hidden away from him in the earth. Show him the future renewal of all mankind and its resurrection, perhaps through Russian thought alone, the Russian God and Christ, and you will see what a mighty, truthful, wise, and gentle giant he will rise before an astonished world, astonished and frightened, because all they expect from us is the sword, the sword and violence, because, judging by themselves, they cannot imagine us as other than barbarians. That is how it has been up till now. And as time goes on, the more it will be so. And here, however, something happened to cut short the orator's speech in the most unexpected fashion. All this hectic tirade, all this outpouring of passionate, agitated words and rapturous ideas, jostling and tumbling over one another in a kind of turmoil, foretold something ominous something peculiar in the mental state of this young man who had so suddenly broken out for no apparent reason. Of those present in the drawing-room, all who knew the prince wondered uneasily, and some with embarrassment, at this outburst of his, so out of keeping with his usual, almost timid reserve, his rare and singular tact on other occasions, and his instinctive feeling for the decencies of behavior. They couldn't understand how it had come about. The news about Pavlishev couldn't possibly have been the cause— in their corner, the ladies were looking at him as if he had gone mad, and Bielakonskaya confessed afterwards that another minute and I would have run for safety. The elders were disconcerted by the initial surprise of it all. The general superior looked on with stern disapproval from his chair. The engineer colonel was sitting stock still. The little German had turned positively pale, but still retained his counterfeit smile glancing at the others to see how they would respond. Actually, all this, the whole embarrassing scene, in fact, might have been resolved within the minute in the most ordinary and natural fashion. General Yepanchin, considerably astonished, but recovering himself quicker than the rest, had tried several times to halt the prince. After failing to do so, he was now making his way towards him, intent on firm and resolute action. Another moment, and had it been necessary, he would have nerved himself, perhaps, to lead the prince away in a friendly manner, on the pretext that he was ill. Ivan Fyodorovich certainly believed he was, and it might well have been the case, in fact. But events took a different turn. At the very start of the evening, as soon as the prince came into the drawing-room, he had seated himself as far as possible from the Chinese vase that Aglaya had so alarmed him about. Could one really believe that, after Aglaya's words of the day before, a kind of indelible conviction had imprinted itself on the prince's mind? A sort of amazing and impossible presentiment that he would smash the vase the following day, no matter how hard he tried to steer clear of it and avoid disaster. But so it was. As the evening wore on, other powerful and luminous emotions began to flood his soul. We have already spoken of these. He forgot about his presentiment. When he caught the conversation about Pavlishev and General Yapanchin had brought him up to introduce him to Ivan Petrovich for the second time, he had moved his seat nearer the table and sat himself down in an armchair close to a huge and beautiful Chinese vase, standing on a plinth almost level with his elbow and a little behind. As he spoke his last words, he suddenly rose from his seat and waved his arm carelessly, 
moved his shoulders somehow, and there was a sudden cry from all present. The vase tottered, as if initially undecided whether to fall in the head of one of the old men, but abruptly yawed in the opposite direction, where the little German barely leapt aside in horror and fell to the floor. The crash, the shouts, the precious shards scattered over the carpet, the dismay, the astonishment. It would be difficult, indeed unnecessary, to describe what the prince was feeling. We must mention, however, an odd sensation that came over him at that instant, and stood out sharply from all the other strange and confused emotions that came crowding in upon him. It wasn't the embarrassment, the disgrace, the fear, not the suddenness of it all that struck him most forcibly. It was that the prophecy had come to pass. He would have been at a loss to explain what was so arresting about this notion. He simply felt stricken to the heart, and stood there in a terror that was almost mystical. A moment passed, and everything before him seemed to expand. Instead of horror, light and gladness, ecstasy. He began to struggle for breath, and... But the moment passed. Thank God it wasn't that. He took a deep breath and looked about him. For a long time he seemed not to comprehend the commotion seething all around, or rather he understood perfectly well and saw everything, but kept standing there like a man apart, who had had no hand in it all. Like the invisible man in the fairy tale, he had made his way into the room and was observing people he didn't know, but whom he found interesting. He saw the fragments being cleared away, heard the sound of rapid conversation, saw Aglaya, pale and looking strangely at him, most strangely. There was no hatred in her eyes, and not a trace of anger. She was gazing at him with a frightened but affectionate expression, while her eyes flashed at the others. All at once he felt a sweet pang in his heart. At length, he saw with an odd amazement that everyone had resumed their seats and were even laughing, just as if nothing had happened. A minute passed, and the laughter grew louder. Now they were laughing as they looked at him, at his mute stupefaction. But the laughter was friendly and cheerful. Many of them spoke to him, and they spoke so gently. Lizaveta Prokofievna, above all. She was laughing as she spoke and saying something very, very kind. Suddenly he became aware that General Yepanchin was patting his shoulder in friendly fashion. Ivan Petrovich was also laughing. But, better still, most agreeable and affectionate of all was the little old man. He took the prince's hand and, pressing it gently and patting it lightly with his other palm, urged him to pull himself together, as if he were a little frightened boy which appealed to the prince very much, and then sat him down close by his side. The prince gazed into his face in sheer pleasure, but found it hard to speak for some reason. His breath failed him. He liked the old man's face so much. What? he murmured at length. You really do forgive me? And you, Lizaveta Prokofievna? The laughter swelled. Tears started into the prince's eyes. He couldn't believe it, and he was enchanted. Of course it was a beautiful vase. I remember it being here for the last fifteen years or so. Yes, fifteen, Ivan Petrovich began. Well, what a calamity. Every human being comes to an end, and here we are fussing over a clay pot, said Lizaveta Prokofievna loudly. You didn't let it alarm you, Lev Nikolaevich, did you? she added with real apprehension. It's all right, dear. It's all right. You frighten me. You really do. And do you forgive me for everything, apart from the vase? The prince made as if to rise suddenly, but the old man at once tugged at his arm. He was reluctant to let him go. C'est très curieux et c'est très sérieux, he hissed across the table to Ivan Petrovich, rather loudly, however. The prince might indeed have heard it. So I haven't offended any of you. You won't believe how happy that thought makes me. But that's how it should be. How could I possibly offend anyone? I should be offending you again if I thought so. Calm yourself, my friend, 
You're exaggerating this. You have no reason at all to thank us. It's a fine feeling to have, but exaggerated. I'm not thanking you. I'm only feasting my eyes on you. It makes me happy just to look at you. Perhaps what I say is 